So let's, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into uh, the, the contents of the lesson tonight. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us the Bible. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would love it, that we would be faithful to study it, that we would uh, diligently try to find the one meaning which you want us to know, and then allow that to change our lives, Lord. I pray also that we would be faithful to sharing it with our, um, our co-workers, our friends, our family, that we might also show them the love of Christ. Help us tonight to be uh, faithful and truthful with the things that we discuss. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is one thing that every relationship must have? Or maybe you have a couple things. What are a couple things? But the important things for a relationship. Trust. Trust. Okay. Why is trust important? There isn't a relationship if you don't have trust. Or a good relationship. Okay. Right. Yeah, good relationship. You, you have to trust. What, what are some of the things that you have to trust? I mean... And their yeah. character. Their character. Okay. You have to trust that the person that we're communicating with is being truthful. Right. That that the information that they communicate is truthful. Good. What else is important to a relationship? What what's something else every relationship must have? Communication. 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 Why is communication important? It's an exchange of thoughts and feelings. Okay. It's an exchange of thoughts and feelings. Can you truly ever know the other person if they don't communicate to you? You can't, right? You'll never know who they really are. You'll never know what they like and what they don't like. You know, those things that drive them nuts. <laughs> it's like, you know... The famous saying, well, you should have read my mind. Uh, I can't. <laughs> Unless you express it, then I don't really know who you are. And so every communication must be built, or every relationship must be built on communication. But it can't be perfect. Right. You can never know everyone yeah. perfectly. Yeah, so you, so yeah, you can never know anyone perfectly, and it's nearly impossible to have perfect communication, right? Sometimes you can't adequately get words to your thoughts or to your feelings. Sometimes you misspeak. <laughs> so we're never going to have perfect communication amongst people. Well, yeah, we lie, we, we manipulate, and we do a lot of things like that, right? Well, the reality of it is that what we're about is really a relationship with God. He, Christianity is a relationship. It's not, it's not a religion. It's not a list of expectations of do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship. And really, it's like any other relationship. We're talking about getting to know God and what he's like, what he expects, what he doesn't expect, what makes him happy, what makes him angry, and so all of that aspects of the relationship is only known by communication. Right? So we're trying to communicate with God. 
And so it's this idea, like any communication, it's like thoughts in God's mind that need to become thoughts in our mind. You know, as we listen to who he is and, and, and what he expects and stuff. Because ultimately then, we want that to end up into changes in our lives. It's not, it's not so much that we just want to have the thoughts and then that's it. We're done. It's that the thoughts that are in God's mind that become thoughts in our mind ultimately are going to be changes in our lives as we become more like Christ, right? Be holy for I am holy. But what is holy? What does holiness look like? What does it take to be holy? And so that is the whole idea. What is it going to take for communication to happen in this relationship? Okay, actually, it makes me think of, of the story of Moses. If you go back to Exodus chapter 33 and 34, we see a picture of this. This is one of my favorite, one of my favorite exchanges in the Bible. Because you might stop and say, or someone might say to you, well, that's impossible. Why would God, why would God communicate with you? He's not going to do that. Well, let's look to see what happened in Moses' life. So if you picked up the story in Exodus 33, starting in verse 12. Now, Moses, you know, he is the leader of the Israelites. Right? He's, he's leading the people out of captivity, out of the land of Egypt. It's like the job no one really wants because these people, it's like herding cats, right? They're, they're, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're complaining, and he's trying to lead them, and he's trying to do what's right. And you get to Exodus thirty-three twelve, And Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you, right? That, that is a relationship. I want to know you, and I want to find favor with you. And so then he says, remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And I kind of think that's funny. It's because, like, um, well, it's not, you know, it's not really what I'm asking. <laughs> so Moses kind of comes back at it again. If your presence does not go with us, he says, I recognize that. Then don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Right? You, got, you, got, you see the, the relationship going on there? Moses says, I want to know you, and God says, I know you. Okay? So then God says, well then, so this, then Moses said, now show me your glory. I, I want to see it. And the Lord says, well, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. 
Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, and really this concept of glory, it's, it's like all that he is and all that he does, right? And so he says, when all of that passes by, I will I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, kind of literally meaning what remains, but my face you, you must not see or must not be seen. So then we get over to 34, 5. Now this is where it's going down. In 34, verse 5, it says, The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and the fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Okay? And so Moses says, I want to know you. Teach me so that I know you and I know what pleases you. God says, I'll do that. And so he does, right? And he, he tells Moses about himself. He says, I'm compassionate and, and I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. I maintain love, yet I don't leave the guilty unpunished. And so he's telling Moses who he is. Because it's a relationship, right? God has made himself known. He wants to be known. And that is his communication to us. And so how does it happen, right? How do the thoughts in God's mind become the thoughts in our mind so that we can change our behavior. And, and this is the process, okay? This is the process. This is going to be kind of the flow of information because what we're going to find is that the Bible is the primary mechanism of this communication. God's communicating to us, and we're going to see that primary way is done through the Bible. And so then the question becomes... Is this really God's communication? If so, how did I get it? I'm sitting here in 2020 with a copy of this. Where did it come from? And so what we want to do is we want to trace this information all the way back. What we're going to find through the class is we have these thoughts in God's mind through revelation will become thoughts in the minds of the human authors who God used to write these things down. We're going to see that process is called inspiration. So we're going to study. We, we will basically spend time studying all of the arrows. Okay, We'll study this concept of inspiration. We're going to see that that inspiration led to the original manuscripts of the Bible. The scrolls that they had, the letters that they wrote, the historical documents that they penned. Right, Those were all those original manuscripts. And then godly people had to go through a process of deciding which manuscripts. How did we end up with the manuscripts that we ended up with? Are there more? Are there less? Did something slip in that shouldn't be here? Did we forget something that should? And so we're going to study this process that's called canonicity, which is the process by which people, groups of scholars, 
decided which books would be in our Bible. That led to the collection of these 66 books. Then, you've got 66 books, you only have one copy of each, what happens next? Well, then you have to go through this process called transmission, where scribes and people have dedicated themselves to copy these books. And then that led to the modern Greek and Hebrew Bibles. Well, now what? Well, I've got Bibles in Hebrews and, and, and Hebrew and Greek. I've got to get these in other languages. And so then there's the translation process, which has ultimately ended up with our modern English Bible, which, you know, some of us have 12 copies of, right? We have Bibles they are very prolific nowadays. Now, I've got this book in my hand. What do I do with it? Well, through the process of interpretation and illumination, then, that leads to thoughts in my mind. And through application, then, leads to changes in the way I live. Okay? And so, the process of getting from thoughts in God's minds, God's mind to thoughts in our minds, may be a little bit more of a zigzag than it was for Moses. Nonetheless... We're going to see that it's entirely possible. But what we find is we encounter a lot of people who are very critical of this. They're going to look at this and they're going to say, are you kidding me? There is no way that what I'm holding today could be in any way accurate, right? And they'll start trying to poke holes in each one, maybe one arrow or every arrow leading from one box to the next. And so it's good to arm ourselves with, well, let's actually study the facts, okay? Let's just step back, study the facts, look at the data, see the information, and we'll show that, no, it's not only possible, it's actual. It's happened. We've got it, okay? So about the first half of the class, then, we will study this process of going from thoughts in God's mind to our modern English Bible, and then the last half of the class, we'll talk about how do we actually do this process of interpretation so that we get the thought that God intended for us to get. Okay? And that'll be, that'll be very practical from that, from that point. Any questions on anything so far? Okay. This chart... I'm a chart guy, love charts, flow charts, line charts, scatter charts, bar graphs, pie graphs, I love it all. This chart will be kind of our roadmap for the rest of the class. So we will be looking at this often, and we will be studying, you know, the arrows. But what we're going to do is we're going to go backwards. So I'm going to start with the modern English Bible, and then we're going to work our way back. Okay? Yes, ma'am. I can get it on a larger size, yeah. <laughs> would you like, like, would it be helpful if it were just one slide per page or two slides? Do you, do you want do you want some space to write on it too? The charts, the graphs is what I can't Okay, I'd love to. Yep, I'd absolutely. Does every is everybody want bigger pictures? I mean, maybe of just that one. You can do one page of just that one. Got it. I can do that. 
I can do that. That's fine. It can be. Do you want? Yep. I can also send these out electronically. Because some, how many people don't want to print out? Would just rather have it electronically? They can pull it into OneNote or something, doodle inside of it. Because if you don't want to print out, I'll save. I'll save the trees. And who, whoever wants electronic, 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 three electronics, four electronics. Okay, five electronics, six. <laughs> All right. So I will. I will email them out to everyone, and then just print fewer for the people. So that we send paper for people who want it. Good deal. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Now, before we do that, though, it is prudent that we actually define what it is we're talking about, right? So let's take a quick second just to define the Bible and to look a little bit more. We want to address maybe a couple other modes of communication beside the Bible. So we'll quickly talk about those, and then the Bible will then become the focus of the rest of the class. And so the, the question then is, well, what is, what is the Bible? And so... Um, in its you know, simplest definition, it's really a, a collection of 66 books that were written by approximately 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years. And so it's, it's, it's a collection of books. We have 66. Uh, we'll get into some discussion about the Apocrypha. And, and so since we don't have those in our Bible... We have 66 books. We're going to see, as we've already discussed, it's one of the means, it's the primary means by which God has revealed himself to us. Okay, and so if we are disciples of Jesus and we want to obey the commands of Jesus and we're in a relationship with God and we want to know more about him, then it would be prudent to study it, right, and to read it. It is because it is, in fact, the very words of God. Now, um, how many people like to watch HGTV? Yeah, okay. <laughs> HGTV. What's your favorite show? I think longest running is probably Fixer Upper, but right Hometown. now we're watching Hometown. Hometown, okay. That's yeah. a question on how many watch HGTV. So, so what do you mean? You might watch you said, it? You said how many like to watch HGTV. Okay, okay. <laughs> How many? How many are forced to watch it because they're they're the person with whom they're in the relationship? Your wife likes to watch it. Okay, so fixer upper, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people were fans of Chip and Joanna. What's your? What was your? Do you have a favorite? This old house. This old house. It's kind of... Bob Bob Vila. Yeah, yeah. Now he doesn't do it anymore, though, right? No, no he doesn't. Yeah. I see so so in a lot of these shows, I can remember, kind of started with. ABC was the first time when they did Extreme Makeover Home Edition mm -hmm. a number of years ago. I remember watching that, and of course then we would watch, you know, we like to watch Chip and jo Joanna around our house. And, and you know, you got the whole episode, right? And, and they, they go to do this big remodel, and they make the people leave their home. And it could be like, I don't know, like Extreme um, makeover home edition was like a week. Sometimes it takes longer than that. And these people are away from their home, and then all of a sudden they come back for the big reveal, right? And it's like it's, this is going to be the the moment I get to see my house for the first time. And it's like I don't know what to expect, right? You know. And so they always have some kind of a of a clever way to make this happen. So it was like you know, bus driver, move that bus, right? Because 
they'd have the bus sitting there and then it's like, what's behind the bus? I can't wait to see what's behind the bus. Or Chip and Joanna had that thing on wheels, right? And, and had a picture of their old house and the people were just standing there with anxiety to see what was going to happen when they pulled this thing apart. Well, that's, that's, that's revelation, right? It's, it's the big reveal. And so it's knowing something that you didn't know before. And if you look in the Bible, uh, we get this word revelation from a Greek word, apocalypsis. Okay, we don't, we're never going to learn how to pronounce Greek in this class. Every time I try to pronounce a Greek word, I just give it my best shot. It's the definition that's important. And, and that really means an unveiling, a disclosure, a revealing. So to reveal is to disclose to others what was previously unknown to them. And so these people are like, ah, oh, I can't wait to see my house. And then they pull the thing apart and, you know, the guys jump up and down and the women start crying because they're so <laughs> excited. And then they walk through and like, I can't believe this is my house, right? <laughs> That's a reveal. And, and this is really what God does to us, right? Because he's disclosing to us information that we previously didn't know. Just like when you are communicating to anyone you have a relationship with. You are disclosing something like, oh, I never knew that about you, Okay. You're revealing yourself to them. Well, this is what God does to us. And he's done this, and we, we like to break it up in two different ways. We have what we call general revelation and what we call special revelation. We're going to see that the Bible fits into this category of special revelation, but, and we're going to talk a lot about that, so I don't want to, but I don't want to pass up talking about general revelation when we talk about general revelation, it's that God has revealed himself to us in ways sometimes we don't think about, like creation or nature. Um, we have what we call his providence, the very fact that he's taking care of us, and he always has, and then even in our conscience. So I've, I've listed a couple verses there that talk about each one of those categories. In nature, God reveals, we learn things like uh, God exists. And, and we see that God is omniscient and that he will judge. So let's, let's take a quick peek at it. Let's go to Romans 1. Let's look at one verse that talks about general revelation. If we pick it up in verse 18, we read this. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. Right? That's God revealing himself. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Okay? That's talking about God's revelation. That creation speaks on his behalf. 
And according to Paul, that revelation by creation talks about his eternal power and his divine nature. It's enough for us to be able to say he's God. There is a God, he is God, and he's powerful. We can learn that from creation, right? And so that's an aspect of a general general um, general revelation. When you talk about his providence, you can go to, like, say, uh, Acts 14, and it talks about how God has allowed rain to fall on the good and the wicked, and he's established boundaries for them to live in, and he's done these things for our daily life that ought to cause us to step back and say, there must be a God who's in control, and he's good, okay? When we talk about special revelation, some people will use the word specific because it's almost like it's more direct, right? Because in in general revelation, I can know that there's a God and I, I can know certain things about him, but I may not get the gospel. And I don't really know what pleases him and I, you know, I don't know everything. And so I need special revelation. I need, it's, it's more direct, it's more detailed. And so we have in special revelation, two different aspects. We have Jesus Christ and we have the Bible. Jesus Christ is called the Word, right? In John chapter 1, flip over to the book of John. In John 1, we actually see Jesus called the Logos, which is Greek for the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so... And so we have this idea that Jesus teaches us about God. You want to go too? You can. You want to check out what's going on? Okay. Jesus even says, Hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I, I am God in human form. I will reveal to you who God is. And so Jesus Christ is a form of specific. Revelation. Now, because what we know of Jesus is what's given in the Bible, then the Bible really kind of becomes, for us today, that primary mode of revelation. But you think about the disciples, they didn't have the complete scripture, but they were with Jesus. And so Jesus, whoever he interacted with, was actually teaching and revealing God to the people. You can even see that in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, actually, actually, that's a very interesting passage. We'll quickly just look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the past, God spoke, again, see, that, that's revelation. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Okay, and so, hey, God has spoken. He's revealed himself. He did it through the prophets. Now he's doing it through Jesus. And so that is 
special revelation. That is God establishing a relationship with us so that we may know who he is. Okay. Um, So I kind of got a little bit ahead of myself. I had put some things here that, you know, nature reveals the divine character. So I, you know, put a few things in your notes there to talk about just the beauty of God's creation. God is in control. He's powerful. He's glorious. He's he is glorious. Um, and that's general revelation. But his words really bring about change. So I put it here at various verses where the Bible claims to be the very words of God. We're not going to look at all of these. Okay? But we have a number of different instances. And you might say, you might interact with people and say, well, yeah, I mean, they claim to be, but that doesn't, you know, make it true. And so then we need to go about the exercise of understanding that it is true, but also realizing that it always comes down to faith, okay? And, and so there's always going to be the aspect where you believe by faith and see that the facts support that. Okay? The bottom line, though, is Christianity is by revelation, we would never know about God if he hadn't chosen to reveal himself to us. By creation and by the other things. Right? I mean, we, we wouldn't. Self-illumination is impossible. It's like, it's like a light trying to plug itself in. I mean, you can't, it doesn't happen. Self-illumination is not possible. You think about someone who writes a play and... You get the actors on the stage, they have no knowledge of the person who writes the play. And in fact, you know, Shakespeare actually wrote himself into one of his plays, Hamlet, so that Hamlet would know about him. Otherwise, how are they going to know? We wouldn't know about God unless he chose to reveal himself to us. And that should make us stop and pause and think, why? And it gets back to this idea of a relationship, right? God wants to have a relationship with us and therefore has chosen to reveal himself to us. How awesome that is, right? I mean, really, how awesome that is. Any questions on this concept of revelation? That's what we have. We have the revelation of God, the very words of God, to establish our relationship. Now let's kind of get into this aspect of, you know, where did it come from? How did, how did I get to sit here in 2020 and have this in my hand? And so that takes us and our first arrow to this idea of translation. Okay, we're going to work our way back. Now, you, you, maybe you're saying, well, why, why work backwards? Well, because everything that we're going to be discussing is based upon what I'm holding in my hand today, right? And so I found it best and 
most logical to work backwards. Okay, so this is what I'm holding in my hand today. Let's take that first step and we'll keep working our way back in history to its origin. And so the first step then is translation as we see here. Okay, so I've got the modern English Bible. It says it's the word of God. Can I believe that? So let's take this first arrow, translation. And so this Bible came from modern Greek and Hebrew Bibles. Got it? And so the first question then, can we, if, if, if we had a Greek and a Hebrew text, yes, sir? <clears throat> well, how, what do you define as modern? Ah, this. I mean, like from King James Ford or yeah, Gutenberg Ford? Well, um, yes. Okay. Yeah. That would all be modern relative, you know, to when the Bible was written. But even if in any of our, any translation that we may carry today, let's just say that. So whether it's ESV, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, or NASB, or New King James, or any of those, anything that's in English came from a Greek manuscript, can that be trusted? Can the process by which someone took that Greek to the Hebrew, is it possible? Can it be done? What do you guys think? What do we know about translation? What's that? Some things can get lost in translation. But I think it has a lot to do with, like, you know, different ones are idea-based, and different ones are, like, word-for-word. But then there are times when word-for-word doesn't work, so you have to get the kind of meaning behind it. Okay, good. Yeah, like the difference between, like, NASB or NIV or something like that is... She was saying is some of them are they literally try and find the modern English equivalent for a word as long as the sentence structure still makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas other ones will take a sentence and they try and use a lot of the same words but more capture the idea of what the original manuscript would have been trying to convey. Okay. And so you guys are saying a lot of things that we're going to be talking about in just a couple minutes here. Okay. That's great. Um, but let's just step back for a second and say, say translation in general. Uh, I mean, let's, let's step out of the context of, our, of a Bible and think, is translation possible? Someone knows the language. Right. I mean, <laughs> what, what, is it, what, it, what it takes is someone who knows both languages. And they can take one language and convert it to the next. And so if you have a good understanding of both languages... You can translate, and we see this all the time. It, it's happening daily. I mean, my phone can do it now. Google Translate. You, you can walk into a foreign country and not know a language because Google Translate, if you trust it, will give you that language, right? It is entirely possible, and the world does it all the time, taking one language to another language. As long as the person doing it is an expert, let's say, they've studied it, they know what it's about, or you have a group of people who are experts and they've studied it and they know what it's about and they take the time to do it properly. Translation is absolutely something that can be done. I'm just kind of thinking about one of the problems with translation too at, at the time, historically at the time, there were translations of manuscripts. That's what they translated is the manuscripts. There is no originals. So 
it depends on transcript. So someone can translate this and then like when the Dead Sea Scrolls came, that just that just sealed it practically. Yep. But yep. As transcripts have become more manuscripts have become more and more closer to our time, history wise, then the translation can change. And so there's that criticism. Yeah, there's there's a whole aspect of textual criticism because you have to ask the question, well, what manuscripts am I going to start with, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of translation goes, and we'll talk about those various aspects. Probably the, the thing that makes it the hardest is just, is the time between them because you know, ancient Greek and Hebrew aren't the exact same languages like that the Greeks speak today, or and so there's a lot of time, and it's, it's, it's going back and understanding what those words mean and, you know, being able to write them properly. But what we're going to see is that while it's difficult, it is certainly not impossible. Okay, and we, as Terry was even alluding to, you know, new manuscripts will be discovered, and we'll find out that what we have is extremely accurate. And we'll talk about some of that over the next couple weeks. Now, I want to, um, we're not going to get into the technical aspects of translation. I just, I want to really spend the rest of the time talking about maybe a little bit of the timeline of the English Bible, and then we want to talk about the different translations that we have. If you are interested in a lot of the details of the translations, a book like this goes into some painstaking details different manuscripts that we have, different choices of manuscripts and things like that. It's a very good read. Um, for now, I want to introduce you to a couple concepts that you might hear if you're reading a book or are in certain circles. Uh, let's look at the Old Testament. Obviously, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so throughout the years, that has been translated to other languages. One that you'll hear about very often is called the Septuagint. Greek, Roman, I'm sorry, Roman numerals LXX. So if you remember what that means, that's 70, right? L is 50, two X's, 10 apiece. That's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was completed in the 2nd century BC by 72 Jewish scholars, strangely enough, by the request of the king of Egypt. That's why it's called the Septuagint, because 70 scholars were doing the translation. Okay. That actually became the Bible of the Greek-speaking synagogues in the early church, for early Christians. So the Hebrew, you know, they, since they didn't know Hebrew, they were reading a Greek copy of the Hebrew, which was called the Septuagint. And you're going to find, a lot of times as you're going through the New Testament, quotations... In the New Testament, quotations from the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. So even sometimes when our New Testament authors were writing, and they were writing quotes from the Old Testament, they were writing a quote from the Septuagint, right? Because they were writing in the Greek, so they would just, you know, get to the Greek copy, write that down, and that's what they would have. And so you'll see that the Septuagint referred to a lot. A lot of times, you may even see a footnote in your Bible saying this is from the Septuagint, or you'll actually see LXX. Okay, so that was like a Greek copy of the Old Testament. Some of our English Bibles came by translating the Greek, 
than the English. But if you really want to do a more accurate translation, you'd actually go back to the Hebrew. You always want to go back. You want to take out as many pieces in the middle as you can, right? So you don't want to go, you really don't want to go too many different languages in between. You really want to go back to the original language to get it right. You may also hear about the Vulgate. Okay, the Vulgate was the Latin translation of the Old Testament, made famous by Jerome, was the man who did it in about the 4th century B.C. He actually took it from Hebrew and put it into Latin, which was the, the common language of that day. Now, in terms of the English Bible, um, it's pretty fascinating if you really get into a study of this. Um, again, this book and books like this go into a lot of detail on some of this stuff. And, but in terms of our English Bible, you might be wondering, when did the first English Bible become available? In 405 AD, that's when the Vulgate was completed by Jerome. It wasn't until about 900 AD that you had what was called the Wessex Gospels. So that's the first gospel in Old English. But see, it came from the Latin. So it went from Hebrew to Latin, Latin to English. Not the best way to go about it, but those scholars may not have been proficient in Hebrew, but they may have known Latin, right? So you can take Latin to English. Uh, 1384, the English Bible of John Wycliffe. Again, he, he didn't know, in terms of the Old Testament, he didn't know uh, the Hebrew, so he went from Latin. He took the Vulgate. But John Wycliffe, John Wycliffe obviously, um, was a tremendous man of God, and, and you know, Wycliffe Publishing was named after, after that man. 1525, you have the English Bible of William Tyndale, the first printed English Bible. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that guy. I know we're not really a class on church history, but I, if you ever get a chance to study his life, and we're going to look at a few aspects of what he did so that I can hold this in my hand today, it's pretty amazing. In 1560, you have the Geneva Bible. That was the Bible of the late reformers, the Puritans and the Pilgrims. So when they set sail on the Mayflower to come here and found our country, they would have been carrying the Geneva Bible. Okay. Uh, John Calvin was instrumental in writing the Geneva Bible, and many of the footnotes and things in there were, were things that his students had recorded and, and put into the Geneva Bible. Um, if you ever get a chance to see a Geneva Bible, it's kind of interesting. You probably won't be able to read it. You'd be amazed at how much English has changed. And I'll show you an example here in a minute. The King James Bible uh, came about in 1611 on the order of King James. And it's about 90% of Tyndale's Bible, 90, of his New Testament. It's very similar to the Tyndale Bible. So we've had English versions for quite a while when you really stop and think about it. 700 years or so. Uh, so. Yeah. Are you saying that the, the King James is only 10% original? There, what did... It is my, that my understanding is that they did not, when King James had them do that, he did not set out to do a complete translation. That they, most of the work that they used was from Tyndale's Bible. Just a copy. 
Why did Tyndale use as a source? Tyndale, um, I don't know, to be honest with you, but my guess would be the Byzantine text or the Texas, Texas Receptus, which, um, I mean, I don't know anything more about it than that. But that gets into the whole debate of King James only. Because some people think that the Texas Receptus manuscripts are the only ones that were authorized or inspired by God. And that's where that whole debate of King James only comes in. So that would be my guess of what he used as well. Um, let me just show you a passage. We, we read Hebrews 1 a minute ago. Here, here it is in the Wycliffe Bible. <laughs> Can you believe it? I mean, I can't, I can't believe how much English has changed. It's almost another language. Yeah. And you think, you, know, you think the King James is outdated. That's crazy. About half the words make sense. <laughs> yeah, right. About half the words make sense. Even the ones you do understand, you're not sure you understand. You, know, you, you truly understand them, right? So, um, just a couple more things. I want to quickly address this topic of why so many versions. That was a kind of a timeline of the English Bible, but then the question becomes, why so many versions? Okay, And it gets back to what Brett and Katie were saying. It's not so much that there was a disagreement, although you may have people you know, who say, you know what, I think we could do this better or whatever. It really boils down to purpose, okay? It really boils down to purpose. Some manuscripts or some versions of our Bible today were written with this kind of a paraphrase idea where a translator may read a paragraph in the Greek Bible, kind of they, they digest what the meaning of that paragraph is, and then they translated into English, much like a translator would do if I were speaking in Spanish, right? And, and they would stand there next to me, and they would listen to me speak concepts, and then they would, okay, let me put this concept in Spanish, and then give the whole concept. That's kind of that paragraph, paraphrasing type idea. And you'll see some of these paraphrasing or thought-for-thought thought type things down here, like the message, or another popular one you might see is the New Living Translation, okay? Other ones would be this word-for-word. Word. Oops. So you can imagine someone reads one Greek word, translate it, write it. Read the second Greek word, translate it, write it. It is extremely literal. It's extremely accurate. But it's also unreadable because word order changes in languages as well and so you know you have things like a true interlinear you can read the exact Greek word but it might not make sense so you can kind of move down the progression here 
NASB are very word for word, but they've kind of rearranged the order to make them a little more readable. Uh, ESV is a little bit more on that schedule or on that side of the continuum. And then you have things like the NIV, which might be in the middle. Okay, so there's the NIV there. So you might come across some people that are like, well, I would never use that translation. I only use this translation or this, that, or the other. And, and I'm kind of a guy that says, you know what? I use whatever tools fit for purpose. There are times I actually like to sit down and pick up something, oops, like the New Living Translation and read it because it kind of reads like a modern-day letter. And maybe I just want to read an entire chapter or an entire book and you can read it through pretty quickly. If I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do really deep study, I'll pull out something more like an NESB, and it'll be a lot more literal, a lot more word for word. And so I like to use the phrase, it's kind of fit for purpose. I, you know, most of you probably, if you have a Bible software, and as we get into more of our application and how do we study it, most of these apps that you can have will have about every version you can imagine. Um, and you flip back and forth between various ones, and, and you can do a lot of good study that way. Is that a chronological? No, this, this is not chronological. This is only how it was translated, word for word, thought for thought. So as an example of word for word, that would be like if, if back to my translator mentality, I'm speaking Spanish, I got an interpreter here, I say one word, they translate it, tell you that word. I say the next word, they translate it, tell you that word. And it would be very accurate, but it's going to sound a little weird. Because some languages put subjects at ends, at the end of the verb, you know, ver uh, sentence, and verbs are in kind of different order. Very accurate, very hard to read and listen to. And so you always are balancing this concept of accuracy versus readability. And so a thought for thought, you know, I'm going to read a whole sentence or paragraph, get the thought, translate it, versus more of a word for word. And, and none of them are purely that way. That's why it's kind of this continuum, right? I mean, NASB is about as rigid, about as word for word as we have, and it's still readable in the English, but they took very little liberty in the translation process, Okay. So that's not saying that the message, the message is worse than the living. No, that's not that. That's a that some some people may have that opinion, um, but that's just saying that is about as most of a paraphrase as we have. And so the problem with paraphrases is now you're starting to get into you're trusting the interpretation of the of the translator, because you're assuming that the translator, you know, read it. <coughs> understood exactly what was what was being intended and then saying it so you're at the mercy of the translator um, if you're trying to read things quickly they're very readable they're they're very but but you may not be getting you, you hope you're getting the right interpretation on the other end the word for word if, if you're just picking one word and translating it you're not giving me any bias into what it is because you're not interpreting it for me. You're just saying this word means this, this word means this, this word means this. But at some point I'm like, I can't read this. I'm, I'm, I've been sitting here five minutes looking at one verse. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so where's the balance? And, and so that's that. 
That's what that means. Can you confirm something that I heard? Maybe. I heard that the guy that wrote the living didn't actually expect it to take off because he actually wrote it for his kids. Oh, I, I don't know. But then later he decided to get more serious about it and wrote the NLT, New Living Translation, which is more, more accurate. I, I can't, I can't, can neither confirm nor deny. I've not heard that, yeah. Yeah. So, um, when we get to the application point, we'll look at various things um, on, on how to use them. Obviously, some of them are better, but that doesn't mean you can't use any of them, right? Like I said, sometimes I'll sit down and just, you know, if I just want to read and I'll just read it like a letter, New, new Living Translation. I don't have a message. I don't use much of the message, but you know, in the New Living Translation or something like that, then for study, you kind of move down farther towards the word for word. I want to end, we only have five minutes, so we, we don't really get into the nuts and bolts of how they do that translation. Generally speaking, it's a group of people, a group of scholars who get together and they say, you know what, we're going to set out to make a new translation. These are the guidelines by which we're going to do it. Then they go off and they choose some manuscripts. We're going to see in the coming weeks that, you know, the pieces that we have, the manuscripts that we have, the, the copies we have, you know, they have to set out to choose which ones they're going to use and, and which ones are more accurate, and, and they go through those. Um, but what I want to close on is this, is this um, a little bit into the life of William Tyndale. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna cut the PowerPoint because we're gonna be doing this. And I want to focus on his life. A couple different reasons. I appreciate when you go back in history and you look at what people have done, and, and men like him and people like him, um, you can be thankful for them. It can be an encouragement to us as we work to stand strong. And we're going to see, that just like what Pastor Chris was talking about this morning, you know, Christianity can be very hard. William Tyndale lived in 1494 to 1590, or 1536. So if you do the math, that's, what, uh, 42? He was a remarkable scholar and a linguist. He actually spoke eight languages, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, English, German, and French. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, he was a, a, obviously a, a smart kid. He actually entered preparatory school at Oxford at the age of 12, studied grammar, geometry, astronomy, all of the classic studies of the day. He received his bachelor's in 1512, his master's in 1515, and he was ordained into the priesthood. Okay, He became a Catholic priest, went on to study at Cambridge, um, I won't get into all the details of his life. He actually went and became the like, kind of the personal priest of a rich family in, uh, in England. And they would get together and they would debate, you know, various things. And many of his friends kind of became very leader, big leaders in the Reformation. But in 1524, as he was a kind of a personal chaplain or priest for a family, he was at a, at a, local um, 
restaurant, and he, he kind of fell into a heated argument with, um, with a Catholic clergyman who said, we had better be without God's law than the Pope's, okay? Basically saying the Pope's word was more important than God. And, and Tyndale boldly responded this. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. He said, if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou does, okay, which is what he said to this Catholic priest. Because you have to understand, people didn't have a Bible, right? We sit here with 12 copies on our shelves. These people didn't have a Bible. It was against the law for the people to have a copy of the Bible. The only people who had the copy of the Bible were, were the priests. And so what he's saying is, is I'm going devo to devote my life so that some boy who's driving a plow will know more about the scriptures than you do. And so from that point forward, his ambition was translating the Bible into English. They didn't have an English Bible, right? And so people were only... You think about someone trying to have a relationship with God, and the only information they had was what somebody else told them. And so you got to wonder, is, is it true? And so they were in the dark. And so he sought to do that. That automatically made him a fugitive. Uh, he was openly opposed by the church in England. He was forced to leave his country. And then he spent the next 12 years up to his death on the run as a fugitive. He moved from town to town working in secret and evading those that the church sent after him to track him down. So the Church of England was hiring people to find him. Finally, uh, he, he fled England and he began to print his New Testament. The, this was the first portion of the scripture to be translated into English from the Greek and to be mechanically printed. He would then smuggle Bibles back into England in bundles of cotton and they sold for three shillings and two pence, whatever that means for you. In, 19, in 1528, after having taught himself Hebrew, he began translating the Pentateuch and then revised his New Testament. In 1529, after he completed the Pentateuch, he set sail for Hamburg, Germany to have it printed. And the ship encountered a storm and was wrecked. And wrecked. He lost everything. He lost his books, his writing, and this entire Pentateuch translation. So what did he do? He started over, right? He didn't let that stop. Um, to make a long story short, um, a bishop in London basically offered a large sum of money to travel to, for anyone to go to Europe and to find him. And so one day, one, of, one, one person who he would have considered his friend tracked him down. He was arrested and, um, and he was, um, oh, let me read, let me read, I'm going to read you a portion of a book. This is what happened to William Tyndale. So in 1536, he stood trial. A long list of charges were drawn up against him, and he was condemned as a heretic, only because he was translating the Bible in English. His, offense, his offenses included believing that justification is by faith alone, that human tradition cannot bind the conscious, that the human will is bound by sin, 
that there is no purgatory and that neither Mary nor the saints pray for Christians and Christians should not pray to them. The same day Tyndale was excommunicated from his priesthood in a public service. In such a ceremony, the priest typically was brought before a large gathering in his priestly robe and forced to kneel. His hands were scraped with a knife or a sharp glass to symbolize the removal of the anointing of the priesthood. The bread and the wine of mass were then placed into his hands and then removed, and then finally he was stripped of his priestly garment and reclothed as a layman. After this humiliating ceremony, Tyndale was handed over to the secular powers for punishment. The death sentence was then pronounced. So Tyndale was executed on October 6, 1536. A large crowd gathered at the southern gate of the town held back by a barricade. In the circular space, two beams were raised in the form of a cross. At the top was a strong iron chain. Brush, straw, and logs were piled at the base. At a set time, the general, who was the emperor's attorney, sat down with the other officials, and then the crowds parted as the guards brought Tyndale out. He was allowed a moment to pray, and then was urged one last time to recant. When he refused, the guards tied his feet to the bottom of the cross and fastened the chain around his neck. The brush, straw, and logs were packed around him, and gunpowder was added. It was probably at this moment that Tyndale cried his famous last words, Lord, open the eyes, open the king of England's eyes. When he was given the signal, the executioner quickly tightened the noose, strangling Tyndale. They then handed a, he was then lit a lighted wax torch to the executor who lit the brush and the straw. The gunpowder then exploded, blowing up Tyndale's corpse, and what remained of him hung burning into the glowing fire. Okay, all because he translated the Bible into English. And I'm going to finish. I've already gone over a couple minutes. I apologize. I want to read one thing. I want to read a quote to you. This was a letter written by Tyndale while he was in prison awaiting to be executed. He wrote a letter to the head prisoner, I guess the warden, that said this, I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from a cold in the head and am afflicted by the perpetual catarrh, which must be some kind of a sickness, which is must increase in this cell. A, a warmer coat also, for which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirt also are worn out. He has a woolen skirt, if, if he would be good enough to send it. I, also, I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on. He also has warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have my lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and the Hebrew dictionary, and I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whom spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. And then he signed it, Amen, 
William Tyndale. I mean, wow. This guy was in prison, and all he wanted was his Hebrew Bible and his Hebrew dictionaries so that he could study. And he gave his life so that we could have this, right? 